It's great to be with you all. My name is Larry. If I haven't met you yet, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's October 1st. I can't believe it's October 1st. Every time it's October 1st, I always think about that um, Green Day song, Wake Me Up When September Ends. And, uh, but I always think about it sort of in the spiritual sense. And I, it's just like a little personal reminder, like I don't want to be spiritually slumbering. I want to wake up. And so I, I, always, I always come to mind on October 1st. Anyways, um, two weeks ago, we started a sermon series. It's called Women in the Bible. And uh, we are highlighting different women in the Bible and their stories. And we're pulling principles out of those stories that uh, can apply to how we understand women today, how we can support women today, and how can we allow women today to flourish. Uh, today we're talking about Hagar. Now Hagar is, uh, this story is a little tough to process because there's a lot of uh, disturbing things that happen in her story. Uh, but essentially, if you're not familiar, Hagar, she was a female slave living in Abraham's household. She's from another country, and she was forced to sleep with her master. And, and then afterwards, she was abused by her mistress, and then she had to, she fled. Uh, and, and so that's, that's sort of her story in a, in a nutshell. And there's a lot that we can unpack from her story, uh, but we'll mention a few things throughout today's sermon. I think there's a few things we can learn. Um, but before we talk about Hagar, let's set the context a little bit, because what's interesting about the story of Hagar, and actually, you know, I didn't really see a lot of these connections until the past few years, but there's a lot of things that happen in Hagar's story that parallels a lot of other events going on in the Bible. There's, there's a lot, it's kind of like this cross-references all over the place. And so what we'll do real quick is um, we'll address, we'll, we'll look at some of these sto other stories first, and then when we read Hagar's story, then it'll become apparent, oh, this is supposed to remind us of this incident, and this is supposed to remind us of that incident, okay? So that's what we're going to do. All right, so, uh, but before we dive in, let's pray, uh, ask God to join us and uh, um, mold us during this time, and then we'll dive in. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to come to you, to gather together. Um, yeah, we pray that this new month of October would be a month that is marked by spiritual awakening for us, um, uh, a spiritual vitality, and uh, regardless of how our, our September went, uh, we pray that you would meet us in this month, and uh, you would show us how to live and how to walk with you, how to uh, be light and salt and truth here on earth. We pray for this message. Uh, we pray that your will would be done, and uh, we pray that you, you would help us to learn a lot about the story of Hagar. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, let's start from Genesis 12. So in Genesis 12, God calls this guy named Abram for the first time, and then Abram, he later gets the name Abraham. And uh, Abram, he's 75 years old, and his wife's name is Sarai, and she later becomes Sarah. A lot of people in the Bible, they get their names changed, okay? And God tells Abram he's going to be a great nation, he's going to be a blessing to the world. And then the very next scene, we have this strange story, which we're going to read, but there's a famine, and Abram goes to Egypt, and, uh, and something happens there, okay? 
Let's read this. Genesis 12, 10 to 20. And at first glance, you might be wondering, why are we reading this? What does it have to do with Hagar? Well, things will you know, tie in together later. Okay, so now there was a famine, starting from verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord afflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So here's what's going on. Okay, so Abram, he goes to Egypt. There's a famine. He's afraid for his life because back then in those days, it wasn't uncommon for rich, powerful people to see a, or men, to see a woman that they desire and to see, oh, this woman's married to a guy. I can't just take this woman, so I'm going to kill off this guy and marry this woman. So Abram's afraid that similar thing's going to happen to him. So he concocts this plan. He tells Sarai to pretend that she is his sister. And what's fascinating about this narrative is that Sarai has no lines. It doesn't say if she, was, you know, ha- she happily went along with the plan or if she felt uncomfortable doing it or anything. All, this, all we see is Abram telling Sarah what to do, and she does it. In this story, Sarai doesn't have a voice. She's essentially a sex object used as collateral for Abram's safety. Okay? And it's interesting because we'll see a very similar thing with Hagar later on. But anyways, one of the things that's one verse that's worth pointing out <clears throat> is verse 16. He, this is Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female serv- servants, and camels. And so this is the first time in which we see Abram is growing in his wealth. And it's notable that here Abram uh, receives male and female servants because Hagar is later revealed to be an Egyptian. So we don't know for sure, but it's likely Hagar came under under the possession of Abram's family in this incident, okay? So while in Egypt, Abram probably acquires Hagar, and now I want to say one other thing about this story, which is fascinating. I, I just love how the Bible does this. It just connects all these stories together. This story foreshadows uh, the book of Exodus. And if you're familiar with that story, basically Abram, hundreds of years later, he has a bunch of descendants, and they're called the Israelites. And they become slaves in Egypt. And God afflicts diseases on the people of Egypt. And, that, and then Pharaoh, and that's another Pharaoh. But Pharaoh, he's upset, and he tells the people of Israel to, to get out. And so that's, it's almost like a little microcosm of what's going to happen in the future. Anyways, we'll pick that up later. In Genesis, uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Genesis 13 and 14, we have the story of Lot. We have some military battles. And then we have Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God renews his covenant with Abram. He tells, uh, and he goes in more detail about what his promise to Abram is going to be. And there's two lines I want to point out about this scene in Genesis 15 that relate to Hagar's story. All right, the first is Genesis 15, 5. He, this is God, took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars 
if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Okay, so we'll come back to that later, but it's noteworthy that God tells Abram that he will have essentially uncountable offspring. Okay, as numerous as the stars. And there's nothing I want to point out about Genesis 15, which is there's a specific prophecy about Abram's descendants pertaining to Egypt. Okay, this is found in Genesis 15, 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Okay, so we hinted at this earlier, but this is the story of Exodus. Abram's descendants will be slaves in Egypt. They'll be mistreated, and God will deliver them. God will rescue them. All right, so that will... will, will so I'm, again, what I'm doing, if you feel like, what, am, what is this guy doing? He's jumping around. So I'm, I, I'm listing out all the passages that we will then reference when we get to Hagar's story. Okay, so now we get to the story of Hagar. This is Genesis 16. We're going to basically read through the whole narrative, but let's just read a few verses at a time. Let's start with verses 1 through 3. It goes, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. So this is uh, not uncommon in those days that if a wife of a relatively wealthy family that owned slaves, uh, was barren, couldn't conceive children, uh, the husband of that family or the head of the household of that family, they would take a slave to be a surrogate. All right, and so this is essentially what's going on, that Hagar is a slave, and probably she's been living with him for 10 years, and Abram decides to sleep with Hagar. Now, if you're reading this in the modern 21st century, okay, this story screams abuse, okay? This, if this story happened today, this would be posted on Twitter with like a hashtag MeToo, that sort of thing. I mean, think about it. First off, Hagar is a slave. Okay, that's already pretty bad to have slaves, okay? And then, and then you have essentially sexual assaults, okay? There's, Hagar is a slave. She has no rights. She has uh, no voice. Again, she has no lines in this passage, What's going on is she just has to obey her masters, and her master says, do this, and she has to do that, do that, and she has to do that. And here, they ask her to sleep with Abram. Unfortunately, this is how many women were treated back then. They were used as sex objects. This is how Sarah was used. She, uh, when she was in Egypt, she was essentially collateral to protect Abram. She had to She was expected to sleep with Pharaoh even if she didn't want to. And Hagar was expected to sleep with Abram even if he didn't want to, uh, uh, even if she didn't want to. And uh, this happened, this sort of thing happens throughout the Old Testament. Later we have a very similar scene. Abram has uh, a grandson named Jacob. And Jacob has two wives, uh, Leah and Rachel. And essentially they're having like a childbearing contest. Okay, trying to see who has the most kids. And... uh, at a certain point, they both feel like they're losing the race, and so they force their slaves to sleep with, with their husband Jacob as well. And so perhaps you're reading this, and you're, you're, the question that comes to mind is, does God endorse this sort of behavior? 
Does God endorse this sort of behavior? Because, here's the thing, the, the narrative doesn't seem to explicit condemn this sort of, explicitly condemn this sort of behavior. It's not like you read this passage and then you read a line that goes, and God saw this and he was very grieved in his heart. It, you, don't, you don't see that. It just, it just seems like a, a normal narrative. The good and the bad and the ugly, it's all there. And so what do we make with that? Well, I would say, personally, no, I don't think God endorses this behavior. But I think one of the difficult things about the Bible, and especially the narrative sections of the Bible, narrative meaning, you know, this is just, it's, histo- it's history. It's just talking about this is what happened and this is what happened. One of the difficult things about uh, narrative sections of the Bible is that sometimes it's not clear who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. You know, a lot of times when we read story, we want very easy, convenient boxes and categories. Okay, here are the good guys, they do the good things. Here are the bad guys, they do the bad things. And so we can, it's sort of, it's very clear. But oftentimes in the Bible, what we see is that people who God has a relationship with often do bad things. In fact, we just saw that in Genesis chapter 12, God appeared to Abram and he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. In the very next scene, he goes to Egypt and tells his wife, to pretend that she's his sister. And then it causes all these plagues on Egypt. And so we see just right there, sometimes people who are good, they do bad things. We also see this, for example, with Noah. Noah, he seems to be an upstanding dude. God says, hey, build this boat. He faithfully goes in this boat, and he exits the boat. And then right afterwards, there's this random scene of Noah being drunk and naked. So we see this all over the Bible where there's people who seem to walk with God, they seem to do godly things, and then they just do something seemingly horrible, and there's no commentary from the narrator about it. It's not like someone says, and the moral of the story is, don't lie about your wife's identity when you go to another country and you're trying to appease a foreign rule. It doesn't say anything like that. It's just, we read about God's people doing good things, and then they do bad things. But I think I'm guessing one of the reasons why this might be the case is that this is real life. You know, when we live real life day to day, like talking about us today outside of the Bible, when we just do stuff day to day, we also don't have moral commentary. Like when I do something wrong, it's not like God appears out of the clouds, like Mufasa or something, and and says, hey, you're in the wrong, don't do that. You know, like that that never happens to me in real life. Um, oftentimes, we just do bad things, and there's no, no commentary. There's no, no one holds us accountable. We just do it, and no one ever knows about it. And so that's how God works sometimes. That seems to be God's pattern in the Bible, and God's pattern today is that sometimes people do things that are wrong, even God's own people, and there's no condemnation. There's no accountability. There's no justice. It's just, it happens. Um, and sometimes, people who do the sinning, they get away with it. What's fascinating to me about this Genesis 12 narrative about Abram in Egypt is he did something horrible, and he didn't bear any of the consequences. It was the people of Egypt, they had the diseases, they had to bear the consequences, but Abram actually, he made out pretty well. He got a lot of possessions, he became richer as a result. And so when I look at that, I go, that, that doesn't seem fair, that doesn't seem right, but sometimes that's just what happens. Sometimes people do wrong things and there's no consequences.
Um, anyway, let's keep going, all right? Verse 4 of uh, uh, Genesis 16, he slept with Hagar, this is Abram, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. All right, so now we see Sarai is a little bit unreasonable because earlier we read this whole plan was her idea. She came up with the idea for Abram to sleep with Hagar. But now she's saying to Abram, you are responsible. All right, she's blaming Abram for it. But Abram, he actually, you know, you might think he's just this poor victim, but he's actually not any better, okay? Because he, this whole narrative, what he's doing is he's just passively going along with Sarai's suggestions with no moral objection. Sarah's like, hey, Abram, why don't you sleep with this slave? And, and, and Abram's like, oh, that's fine with me. And then Sarah's like, hey, I'm going to mistreat this slave. And Abram's like, oh, that's fine with me. That's, that's essentially what Abram's doing this whole story. And what's interesting about this word mistreat, it, it's the same verb, the same word used in the chapter before. In the chapter before, if you recall, Genesis 15, God appears to Abram, and he says that your descendants will one day be slaves, and they will be mistreated in a foreign land. And so it's very ironic, then, they have these seemingly parallel stories, that Hagar the Egyptian is being enslaved and mistreated by the ancestor of Israel. And then several hundred years later, the roles are reversed. Israel will be enslaved and mistreated by Egypt. Okay, so let's keep reading. So Hagar, she uh, runs away. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Adam's appearance, not Adam, what am I saying? God's appearance to Hagar parallels other appearances in the book of Genesis. Um, when Adam and Eve first sinned, God showed up and he asked Adam, where are you? He asked the where question. And then when Cain killed his brother Abel in Genesis 4, God showed up and asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? And when Hagar is on the run from Sarai, God showed up and asked her, where have you come from and where are you going? And so I think this is a consistent pattern in the Bible that God often meets those who are wandering, meets those who are hurt, whether they have sinned themselves or whether they've been sinned against, but they're just sort of, they're alone, they're hurt. God often meets those people. And I don't think his tone is one of, you know, condemnation or judgment. I don't think he's angry. I think he's just inviting conversation. I think he just wants those people to know, I hear you, and I want to I talk to you. And he's gently inviting his people back to him. All right, so God appears to Hagar and says, where have you come from? Where are you going? Um, verse 9, then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Okay, so there's a few things that's worth unpacking here. The first thing is, this is the first time we see this character, the angel of the Lord, in the Bible. The angel of the Lord, this character, appears multiple times. 
uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, later on, it appears to Abraham and to Moses, to Gideon, and so on. And uh, what's fascinating about this character, the angel of the Lord, is that sometimes the angel seems to be a regular angel, just speaking on behalf of God, but sometimes the angel of the Lord seems to have the authority of God. And if you read a lot of these narratives, it, it would say like, oh, and the Lord said this and this and this, and the angel of the Lord said this and this. Like it, it's almost like they're the same being. And so some theologians believe that this angel of the Lord is actually Jesus himself. It's like a pre-incarnate uh, uh, Jesus before Jesus was born Anyways, regardless of how you think about this character, whether this angel of the Lord is a powerful angel or whether it's Jesus himself, it's clear this character commands the same authority that God has. And so this character says three things to Hagar, and it's a mixed bag. I think there's some things that, he's, you know, the, the angel says that, that make you go, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds pretty good. And there's other ones that go, oh, that sounds, I don't know if I would say that, you know. So let's, let's, go, let's go tackle them one by one. So the first one is, the command to go back to Sarai and to submit to her. Okay, now this may be concerning because this sounds a little bit similar to modern-day pastors who are counseling women who are going through abuse, maybe under their husbands, and essentially telling them, go back to your husband and submit to your husband. So when we, if you were to hear a story like that today, if you were to hear someone say, oh, you know, I am going through this abuse by my husband, and I ran away, I can't take it anymore, but my pastor told me to go back and submit to my husband. Okay? If you were to hear that today, like, red flags would be going off in your brains. Like, that's not, that's not, okay, I, I would never do something like that, all right? And so, and, and what's also confusing is this also seems to contradict a command that God later gives to the people of Israel. Uh, later, the people of Israel, they become a nation, and God gives them a bunch of rules, and one of these rules had to do with runaway slaves. Okay, this is Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like, in whatever town they choose, do not oppress them. All right, so this seems to be a contradiction with what God just said. So how can God tell Sarai, go back and submit to Sarai, when later God would actually say the exact opposite. If, if you have a runaway slave, don't send them back to their abusive master. Okay, how do we make sense of that? Well, if this is all that God said, I think we would have more of a moral quandary. But, moral quandary. but, uh, but God continues on, and he says a few more things. So let's talk about all the things, and let's try to recap everything. All right, so here's the second thing. You will have many offspring. Essentially, he says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And this is fascinating because this is very similar language to what God told Abraham himself in Genesis 15. Remember, he said, look up at the stars. Your offspring will be like the stars, too numerous to count. God repeats a very similar promise to Hagar. And I think it's intentional. I think what, is, what God is saying is that Hagar will share in the promise of Abraham. So that seems very positive, okay? So the first one seems a little bit negative, go submit to Sarah, but this one seems more positive, right? And then, okay, here's the third thing. We get this cryptic poem about uh, Hagar's future son. Uh, he's supposed to have this name Ishmael, and he's going to be like a wild donkey and, and things like that. So what do we make of that? Well, Ishmael literally means God hears. Okay, so that's, that's the name. You know, we, in Hebrew, there's this... Um, 
there's this thing people call, called the Shema, which, which is, you know, hear, O Israel, your God is one. And so that's the Shema, and that's part of Ishmael's name, and then El means God. So it means God hears, and, uh, and, and the reason why Ishmael should have this name is because God hears, God has heard Hagar's misery. He's heard Hagar's cries, later, similar to how later God will hear the people of Israel uh, in slavery cry out to him. So it seems like God is on Hagar's side. Right, he is identifying with Hagar. Now, what does it mean that Ishmael will be a wild donkey? Okay, this, I think this is one of the areas in which maybe we're just so far removed in the 21st century. I don't, I've never owned a donkey before, so I don't know much about donkeys, okay? Well, back then, you know, a lot of donkeys were domesticated, and so I think the point of this is that Ishmael will not be domesticated. Ishmael will not be controlled like Hagar was. He will be a free man. He will be wild and free and he'll be independent. He'll certainly have difficulties as part of the promise too. There are these lines about hostility uh, and, and not getting along with your brothers, but he will be free. And so I think that's the promise to Hagar, you know, and um, I don't, I think because we're so far removed from this context, I think it's a little bit hard to understand, but just try to imagine for, your, for a second that you are a slave. And imagine you live in this system that just mistreats slaves, that, that you can just take, people just take slaves from foreign countries and force them to live with them, and oftentimes what happens is the slaves have children, and those children also become slaves. And so the promise to Hagar is, you will still have suffering, you will still have to submit, but one day your son will be free. I think that's God's promise to Hagar. Okay, so let's keep reading verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Another thing that's fascinating about this narrative is this is the very first time in the Bible that somebody gives God a name. And I think it just goes to show just how intimate this encounter was. She names her son God Hears, and then she names God himself God Sees. And even this well takes on this long name, and this well literally means the well of the living one who sees me. So let's try to recap this. Let's think about this. Okay, so clearly Hagar has this encounter with God, and she is overwhelmed with gratitude and joy and confidence and hope. So she experiences pretty positively. So then what do we make of this, of this first command then, that God told Hagar to go back and submit to Sarai? Um, well, I think there's a few things to say. There's a practical reason for this. You know, back then, it was a very different age. People never lived by themselves, okay? I mean, it, there might be like a few lone rangers, but for the most part, most people did not live by themselves, especially pregnant women, um, people lived in communities, and that was a way to in ensure security. And people who lived by themselves, oftentimes it was like a death sentence. Like you, were, you just had no means of supporting yourself and surviving. So think about Hagar. She's a foreigner in a foreign land. She's far from home. She doesn't have family around. She doesn't have friends around. And naturally, if people were to find out she would be a runaway slave, she was a runaway slave, they wouldn't take her in. And so there was no recourse for her. Uh, unfortunately, because, you know, the way society was back then, it was a very broken society, the only way she could survive is if she went home. 
even though that was difficult. So I think there's a practical reason that uh, she just needed to go home. But I think there's more than that because Hagar's story doesn't end here. Hagar also appears later in Genesis 21, and we're going to read a little bit about that, and then we'll come back to this topic. So Ishmael, now in Genesis 21, he was 14 years old, so 14 years had transpired, and Sarah finally has a son. Oh, by the way, they go by Abraham and Sarah now, okay? And so he gets the name Isaac, this new son. So let's read what happens next. This is Genesis 21, starting from verse 8. The child Isaac grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abram had a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. It can also be translated laughing, judging. Okay. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. All right, so we have a similar scene. So Sarai, Sarah wants to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael, and that's wrong, all right? And finally, we see some semblance of morality in Abraham. We see he's distressed. So do you call, recall the previous incidences uh, where Sarah said, hey, why don't you sleep with this woman? He just went along. Hey, let me mistreat this woman. He just went along. But here, we actually see in Abraham, he's distressed. He cares deeply for Hagar and Ishmael. He doesn't want them to be on their own and to die. Okay, but God comforts him and he gives Abraham essentially permission to obey Sarah's desires. And then he repeats a similar promise that he gave to Hagar. He, he had told Abraham, you know, a long time ago, I'll make you a great nation. He says the same thing will happen for Hagar and for Ishmael. They will be many. They will be a powerful nation as well. And I think what this gets at is this powerful principle, which is, you know, what Hagar needed in the wilderness in that moment wasn't necessarily uh, like a, another way out. It wasn't necessarily a change of circumstances. It was the assurance that God was with her and that God will stick to his promises. And here, what Abraham needed in Genesis 21 wasn't necessarily a way out. It wasn't like, hey, God, can you give me another plan, another path we can take? But it was the assurance that God was with Agar and that God will stick to his promises. You know, sometimes we may find ourselves in very desperate situations and we may wonder, man, there's so much suffering, there's so much pain. Is there another way, God? Can you change our circumstances? Can you provide another way out? And sometimes God does. But sometimes God doesn't actually make a new way. What he does is he comforts us in our suffering and he assures us that he is with us and he will stick with his promises. Sometimes what we need is not a change of circumstances, but it's just the assurance that God is with us. And I think that's why God told Hagar to go back and submit to Sarah. And that's why God told Abraham to let Hagar go into the desert. Essentially, he's saying, unfortunately, this is the path that Hagar needs to take. It's very difficult. It's filled with suffering. But that, hurts, that is her path. But I assure you, she won't be alone. I'll be with her. I'll be walking with her through it all. 
And, um, and here's where it gets a little bit tricky, okay? I don't believe that this is supposed to be a prescriptive passage. Okay, sometimes when we talk about the Bible, we talk about uh, descriptive uh, passages, meaning stories that just describe what happened, versus prescriptive passages. These are things we need to do ourselves. I don't think, what I mean is, if we encounter someone in Hagar's shoes, I don't think we're supposed to say, oh, here's this example of what happened, and these are instructions for us, and we need to do the same thing. And so we also need to, if there's a, you know, a slave woman you know, who's being mistreated, we need to send her, you know, like, I don't, I don't think that's the practical application here. I don't think we just copy and paste these instructions that some person gave to another person, and we apply them to all people throughout history. I think there was something very specific that God was doing here, that he was teaching Hagar, and we learn from that. In the same way, you know, Genesis, uh, I think 22 later, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar, and then he has this miraculous appearance with Abraham. So again, I don't think that's prescriptive. I don't think, you know, people who are fathers are supposed to take this, oh, we need to sacrifice our sons on altars, okay? We don't do that sort of thing. We just, we understand there are some stories in the Bible that we just read as, this, for whatever reason, God told this individual to do something, and it seems a little bit bizarre and strange and absurd, uh, but there's a powerful lesson that we, in the aftermath, we can learn from that, and I think that's what's going on with Hagar. It's not supposed to be something that's applied to people today. Okay, well, let's keep reading. Genesis 21, verse 14. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy, she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot wash the boy's eye. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation." The God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So yet again, we see it's almost like a deja vu scene, right? So Hagar is in the desert. She and Ishmael are about to die, but God sees them. God hears them, and he provides for them water. And he makes sure that their lives continue. You know, Hagar's story uh, is in many ways similar to Moses' story. So Moses shows up in Exodus. He's one of the main characters in Exodus. And Moses, like Hagar, grew up in Egypt. And like Hagar, he felt that he had to run away. And so he did. But in the wilderness, while he was away, the angel of the Lord also appeared to Moses, like he appeared to Hagar, and, but this time it was in a burning bush, and he told Moses to go back. And so Moses went back because there was work for him to do there. God had a mission and a plan for him there. So Moses went back, and while he was there, he metaphorically fathered the nation of Israel, and he set them free. He took them out of Egypt, led them into the desert, and while these people were dying of thirst, God also provided for them water and sustenance. It's fascinating that you have this strange parallel, 
And I think, I think Hagar is meant to be read in a way to remind the people of Israel of their own story. That do you see the suffering foreigner who is a slave woman? This can be you as well. The suffering that is in your history, this woman also experienced. And I think Hagar's story is also similar in many ways to our own story. We sometimes go through difficulties. We experience perhaps abuse or neglect or manipulation. And sometimes we may feel used by others and we may want to run away. That, maybe we've experienced that to different forms, uh, uh, in, in different forms. Now for some of you, maybe the correct course of action is to run away, to get out. I think that's very possible. Get help, get healthy. But here's the thing with God. Sometimes, and we see this pattern in the Bible sometimes, God, when God saves us, he doesn't just you know, teleport us out of the world. He also sends us back into the difficult places that he saved us from. When we cry out to help, when we cry out for help, maybe he will change our circumstances. But maybe, and again, this is not prescriptive, so I don't want to say if you're going to something, you have to do this. But it is possible, I think this story shows that it is possible, maybe God is asking you to remain in the middle of the suffering, and he will give you the assurance that he is with you, and he will fight for you, and he will make sure you have a good future. That could be a possibility. And that may, be seem, that may seem counterintuitive. Why would we do such a thing? Why would we choose to stay in the middle of suffering? Later, we will find out that the story of Hagar, the story of Moses, actually points to the story of Jesus. The reason why we do this is because that's what Jesus did for us. I'm going to read this. This is 1 Peter 2, uh, 18-25. And Peter says there's something very similar to Genesis, which is also a little bit disturbing. But then he points to Jesus. He says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. That's what Hagar did. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So you see, Hagar's life was a shadow, like a movie trailer to a movie, a shadow of Jesus' life. Just as Hagar bore through the suffering, so Jesus also did. Just as Hagar was mistreated, so Jesus was also mistreated, and even to the point of death. And that was God's way of declaring to the world, I see you, and I hear you and I'm always with you. Uh, there's a Black Eyed Peas song that came out in 2003 called Where is the Love? 20 years, I can't believe it's been 20 years. But uh, it's talking about all these horrible things that go on in the world, you know, terrorism and racism and chemical warfare, and, and the chorus goes like this. People killing, people dying, 
children hurt, hear them crying, can you practice what you preach or would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above because people got me questioning where is the love? And I think this question, people have asked different versions of this throughout human history. You know, I'm sure Hagar asked something like this, God, where are you? And I'm sure the Israelites, when they were enslaved, they asked something like that, God, where are you? And maybe each one of us at different points in our lives when we're going through the ringer, we ask the same question, God, where are you? Where is the love? Especially on those days, those nights, when you just feel alone and abandoned and mistreated and misunderstood and no one is with you, you might wonder the same question, God, where are you? And I think it's also fair to say, you know, we're in this series, Women in the Bible, many women, they have this question especially in circumstances when they feel abused or manipulated, mistreated. Uh, they live in cultures, you know, that have misogyny and uh, there just isn't respect for women. And uh, they might ask a very similar question, God, where is the love? God's answer to this question is the cross. On the cross, Jesus died so that the whole world could see that God's love is not just this theoretical idea, but it's lived out, it's personified, it's real. If you've ever suffered and you wonder why God doesn't seem to listen, why God sometimes doesn't notice, why God sometimes doesn't condemn things and bad things just happen and people get away with it and there's no accountability, if you ever wonder that, then I invite you to look to Jesus. Jesus submitted to the sufferings of our world, voluntarily. But unlike Hagar, he wasn't just kicked out of a family, he was actually crucified on a cross. And also unlike Hagar, he wasn't, he didn't have the promise of God that God would be with him. God actually abandoned him and forsook him on that cross. And unlike Hagar, there was no water that God provided to keep her alive, he just, he died. But, as First Peter says, by his wounds we have been healed. Because he died, we've been set free from the slavery of sin, we've been given living water, and we have this guaranteed assurance that God always hears us, God always sees us, no matter what happens. I just want to encourage you, if you're going through the ringer and you're suffering, let the message of Jesus speak to you. That God is with you always. He loves you. He won't give up on you. He will make your life great one day. Just hold on to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this message of Jesus. And uh, it's just uh, so astounding to me every time I think about it, even though it's, it's the same old story that Jesus willingly chose to submit to suffering. Um, he chose to go uh, to this planet full of death and decay and hunger and pain and loneliness and betrayal and, and he died. But he didn't do so in vain. He did so with the hope that that was the means by which God would save the world. And so we thank you so much that you've saved us. You've redeemed us. You've rescued us so that we don't have to suffer anymore.
While in this life, we may still go through suffering here and there, but we do so with the hope that this is not the end, that one day we will be totally set free. We thank you so much for that deliverance. We pray that you empower us to live with God-given freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be moving into a time of communion right now, and uh, communion is uh, the activity we do to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, If you don't have a cup, feel free to grab one in the back. Um, The wafer, the bread on the top, it represents Jesus' body that was broken for us, and and the juice represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. Feel free to open the, the top part right now. At the Last Supper, Jesus took the body, took the bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. We can eat it together. And then he took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We can drink this together. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of Jesus, his body broken, his blood shed for us. Um, It's just such a beautiful reminder that we're not alone. Jesus, just as we go through suffering, so Jesus did as well. We thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.